Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to the third installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 3 of the Michigan Constitution. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matters. Overview. Article 1, Section 3. The people have the right peaceably to assemble and consult for the common good, to instruct their representatives, and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. Article 1, Section 3 is effectively the equivalent of the First Amendment within the United States Constitution. It gives the citizens of Michigan the authority to express their desire via the freedom of speech, It gives them the right to peaceably assemble and to petition their government to redress and change perceived grievances. The freedom of association, unlike the rights of religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition, is a right not listed in the First Amendment but recognized by the courts as a fundamental right. So first of all, let's discuss freedom of speech in private employment. Our first case is Prysik v. Polk. Here's the fact pattern. Mr. Prysik was employed by Polk Company, a publishing and marketing research business. Mr. Prysik was fired from his job for threatening one of his customers of Polk Company, a Crestwood Dodge, which is a car dealership and automotive repair facility. So what happened that caused plaintiff Prysik to come to threaten a car dealership? He had taken his vehicle to the dealership for work to be performed, and apparently was provided a loaner car for use while his car was in the shop. There was a disagreement between the plaintiff and the dealership over how much money Mr. Prysik should have to pay the dealership for the use of the replacement car. Ultimately, the dealership brought a small claims court action against the plaintiff to recover the amount in question. During the course of the small claims lawsuit, mediation was held between the car dealership and Mr. Prysik in an attempt to resolve the matter. Here's where things get muddy. The mediator left the room for a while to allow the two parties to directly communicate with one another in an attempt to resolve the issue. 
Mr. Prizek contends he told representatives who worked for the car dealership that if the car dealership didn't dismiss their lawsuit, Mr. Prizek was going to take a day off from work so that he could stand out front of the dealership and pass out letters to potential customers stating the car he brought to the dealership was a lemon. What's not clear is whether Mr. Prizek bought the car from the dealership and had to bring it back due to it being a lemon, or if Mr. Prizek believed the work that was performed on his car was subpar, resulting in what he considered work that was equivalent to being a lemon. Regardless, the answer to this question is irrelevant to the case at hand. But the dealership says the plaintiff didn't merely plan on handing out letters to potential customers at the dealership itself, but that Mr. Prizek asserted because he worked for Polk Publishing, he would send letters stating his car was a lemon, accomplished by using information available to the plaintiff through his employment with Polk. The theory here being that far more damage could be done to the dealership's credibility because Polk Publishing had names and addresses of many actual and potential clients of the dealership. Based upon the threats made by the plaintiff to mail his letter to customers and potential customers of the dealership, again because of his access to the information at the place of employment, Polk Publishing, the dealership sent a letter to Polk Publishing informing the company of plaintiff's alleged threats. The dealership explained the litigation between themselves and Mr. Prizek, his alleged threat, and their request that his improper use of the customer list not be used in such a manner. The day this letter was received by Polk Publishing, Mr. Prizek was terminated from his employment for making the threat against a customer of the business for which Mr. Prizek was employed. Based upon his firing, Mr. Prizek brought a handful of civil allegations against both the car dealership and his employer. For the purposes of this podcast, we merely need to address the lawsuit he brought against his employer. Mr. Prizek alleged that Polk Publishing violated his constitutional right to freedom of speech, specifically in violation of Article 1, Section 3 of the Michigan Constitution. The plaintiff contends that he was fired for stating that he was going to exercise his constitutional rights to free speech by standing in front of the car dealership and express his dissatisfaction with the dealership's products and services. So let's discuss this case. The Michigan Court of Appeals found that Mr. Prizek was an at-will employee and that under most circumstances, an employee can be terminated for any reason save for a statutorily or constitutionally protected right. But the Court of Appeals said there is nothing in either the United States Constitution nor the Michigan Constitution guaranteeing free speech regarding private conduct. The U.S. Constitution and the Michigan Constitution only protect free speech against government action. So, said another way, because the gripe Mr. Prizek had against the car dealership was a private matter and didn't involve the federal or state government, Prizek can't allege a violation to his freedom of speech because freedom of speech is not a protected right under the Constitution between two private entities. Those private entities, of course, being Mr. Prizek and the car dealership. Here's a hypothetical you can probably relate to. Waiting in line at the Secretary of State's office to renew your driver's license. If you had a particularly bad experience at the Secretary of State's office and wanted to stand outside handing out letters to let people know how terrible you thought the customer service was at your local Secretary of State branch office, well, have at it. 
your beef is with a state governmental entity and Article 1, Section 3 of the Michigan Constitution is going to protect you and your freedom of speech. However, in this fact pattern at issue, the court is declaring that you don't have a protection for freedom of speech when you want to share your opinion against a private entity, at least not when you've been fired from your place of employment for threatening to do so against your employer's customer. The key takeaway with this case is to look to see if the individual's speech involves a matter of public concern, like in the Secretary of State hypothetical, or if it is in regard to a private matter, like Mr. Prysik's car and the work performed on it. Next topic, freedom of speech in public employment. This case is Smith versus City of Holland. So here's the fact pattern. Mr. Keith Smith worked for the Board of Public Works and co-hosted a television call-in show on a public access television station, which coincidentally was operated by his employer, the Board of Public Works. On his television show, Mr. Smith began expressing a critical attitude towards his employer, particularly as it related to two specific matters. First, he asserted that the general manager of the Board of Public Works knew of fraudulent activity on the part of meter readers employed by the Board of Public Works. More so, Mr. Smith alleged nobody within the Public Works division took action to stop the alleged fraud. Second, Smith alleged the administrative services director caused a labor management dispute at the public access television station where Smith hosted his call-in show. Due to the derogatory comments Mr. Smith was making, he was approached by his supervisor stating that the director of the Board of Public Works knew and was concerned about what Mr. Smith was saying. Things escalated when, on the next show Mr. Smith hosted, he appeared on television wearing a mouth gag and explained his job was being threatened at the Board of Public Works because of his comments on this public access television show. As you can imagine, that caused the local press to take notice of Mr. Smith, the Board of Public Works, and the allegations being made. Because of the escalation of commentary by Plaintiff Smith and with the consent of the Board of Public Works general manager, the public relations director began monitoring Mr. Smith and his comments on his television show. Two to three months later, the Human Relations Department for the City of Holland started getting complaints that Mr. Smith was making inappropriate comments to employees at the Board of Public Works regarding women who worked there. Allegedly, these comments were targeted about, amongst other women, the Administrative Services Director, which, as you'll recall, she's the one he said caused the labor management dispute at the public access station. An investigation took place in November 1995, and it seemed from employee interviews Mr. Smith was most interested in the activities of the Administrative Services Director due in part to Mr. Smith's obsessive negative comments and behavior toward her. Likewise, in December of the same year, the Director of the Board of Public Works had to write a memo to Mr. Smith expressing his concern about the on-air comments because they were partly false, but also because it placed the public work employees in a false light. After the investigation into Mr. Smith's allegedly inappropriate actions against the women at the Board of Public Works, there was a meeting in March 1996 with Plaintiff Smith, 
the Board of Public Works Director, and the Human Resources Director giving Mr. Smith a warning that his actions and statements were fostering a hostile work environment for the women. Smith was warned he must immediately stop any behavior demeaning the women, and because this matter was considered so serious, Mr. Smith be ordered to keep the matter confidential. The very next day, Mr. Smith had conversations with both employees of the Board of Public Works as well as non-employees of the Public Works regarding the warning he received from the Human Resources Department. Two days later, he was fired from his job for failure to accept corrective action as well as Smith's defiant, insubordinate, and disrespectful behavior. So let's talk about what's going on here. Mr. Smith filed his case with the federal district court because he brought both federal and state constitutional issues in one lawsuit. We will be discussing the Article 1, Section 3 state constitutional issue. Mr. Smith believed his right to freedom of speech, as protected under Article 1, Section 3 of the Michigan Constitution, was violated when he shared his criticisms against the Board of Public Works on his television show. The district court points out that the rights protected under Article 1, Section 3 is the same as the rights afforded by the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, and as such, the court believes that the same elements required for a First Amendment retaliation claim are necessary to establish a claim pursuant to the Michigan Constitution. So what must Mr. Smith do to prove his freedom of speech was violated by the City of Holland's Board of Public Works? Well, there are three elements that we must work through. Number one, Mr. Smith has to prove the stuff he was saying was protected by Article 1, Section 3. Second, that there was an adverse action taken against Mr. Smith, which, if seen by an ordinary person, would deter that ordinary person from doing whatever it was that Mr. Smith did to have that adverse action taken. And finally, number three, that the adverse action taken was done in part because of Mr. Smith's protected speech as alluded to in element number one. So, to determine if what Mr. Smith was saying was protected by the Michigan Constitution, we look to see if what Mr. Smith was saying is related to a matter of public concern and if the things he was saying outweighed the interest of the government in promoting the efficiency of the public services it performs. So, look at it this way. Mr. Smith is letting you see the man behind the curtain at the Board of Public Works. He's letting his television audience in on things that are happening in the Public Works office, and we need to determine if those comments are a matter of public concern. Well, the court said we can determine if something is a matter of public concern if the speech relates to any matter of political, social, or other concern to the community. In our instance at hand, Mr. Smith's on-air commentary regarding the meter reader scandal, the public access labor dispute, and the attempts to quiet him down regarding his criticisms can be seen as a matter of public concern. After all, these matters all got media attention and were talked about within the community. But also note that these matters involve activities of public officials in and related to governmental issues. For that reason, the court found that Mr. Smith met the first requirement to show that his speech was protected by the Michigan Constitution. The next element we discuss is whether any adverse action was taken against Mr. Smith. The court noted immediately that getting fired for the things you say was serious enough to constitute adverse action. So element two of three has been satisfied.
Finally, plaintiff has to show there was a causal relationship between the protected speech and that adverse action. So said another way, Mr. Smith has to prove that there was a connection that the things he said was the reason he got fired. As the court noted, nobody disputes the plaintiff made numerous criticisms against his employer, the Board of Public Works. And we know that his show was being monitored because the Public Works office took issue with Mr. Smith's comments. The governmental employer went so far as to write Mr. Smith a memo stating as such. Now, the court concedes that the evidence is not conclusive proof that there was a connection between Mr. Smith's protected speech and his employment termination, but the court did go on to say that there is enough quote-unquote temporal proximity between the speech and the firing that the third element was satisfied. Ultimately, this case was sent back to determine if the defendant city of Holland actually fired Mr. Smith for his on-air criticisms or if he was, as the city argued, fired for his failure to keep confidential his work reprimand and order not to discuss with anyone the confidentiality of his sanction. Another matter that is protected under Article 1, Section 3 is the right to petition, and we're going to talk about the case Jackson County Education Association versus Grass Lake Community Schools Board of Education. So here's the fact pattern. In 1977, the Jackson County Education Association, an organization that lobbies for teachers, was in the thick of employment contract negotiations when a number of teachers who were also union members signed a petition requesting the school board, that's the party in negotiation with the Jackson Education Association, to divest itself of the services of its hired negotiator. More specifically, the petition was signed by 509 individuals who were registered voters and taxpayers in the school district. But within those 509 signatures, some were members and officers of the teachers' union representing the teachers in the community. Although not completely relevant to this case, the crux of the petition was a concern about possible waste of taxpayers' money regarding the negotiator hired by the school board to negotiate on the board's behalf with the union. Although the source of the petition's origin was never clarified, there was testimony that the parents in the school district had circulated it. Allegedly, there was no discussion within the union on matters of this petition, nor was the petition presented as being originated by any teacher. So the law at hand. The law issue reads, quote, It shall be unlawful for a labor organization or its agents to restrain or coerce a public employer in the selection of its representatives for the purposes of collective bargaining or the adjustments of grievances, unquote. It was the belief of the school board that by signing this petition requesting the school board to terminate its employment relationship with the hired negotiator, these teachers and union officials were violating the law stating that they couldn't coerce the board into taking actions the petition sought to accomplish. So, maybe phrased a different way, the school board felt that the petition to terminate the contract that they had with their negotiator was done in violation of this law stating that you can't coerce a school board. So let's discuss it. 
The Michigan Court of Appeals noted that it's the right of the citizens of Michigan to petition their government for a redress of grievances and that these are guaranteed to both public employees as well as private citizens. But this right must be balanced against the interest of the state in controlling the exercise of that right. More so, that right can be circumscribed to the extent necessary to achieve a valid state objective. However, the court really never gets into a balancing test to which it alludes. To the contrary, it goes off in a different direction by commenting on the presentation of the petition to the school board. The court acknowledges that the school board is a governmental entity and that the citizens within that school district are the school board's constituents. Based on that belief, the court opines that the kind of pressure a petition can impose on the elected members of a school board was the goal of this specific constitutional provision. It allows the voters to voice their displeasure with their elected board members in hopes to effectuate change. Just because teachers might benefit from the adoption of the petition's desired outcome, it doesn't mean that they aren't allowed to petition their own governmental entity as a tax-paying citizen. These teachers sign the petition as individuals, not as a part of a group effort organized by the teachers' union. The court didn't view this action as an attempt by the labor organization to restrain or coerce a public employer in the selection of its representatives for the purposes of collective bargaining or adjustment of grievances. To the contrary, the court viewed the signing of the petition as asserting their right to petition their government, an action expressly given via Article 1, Section 3. A third protection given under Article 1, Section 3 is the right to assemble. This case is best illustrated by the lawsuit of Woodland Mall versus Michigan Citizens Lobby. Although we've talked about this case in a previous podcast, let's quickly review the fact pattern, particularly the aspects that are most relevant to this article and section. So what happened? The Woodland Mall is a large commercial retail location with department stores, restaurants, electronic toy shoe stores. Look, if, if you've ever been to a mall, I don't think I need to belabor this point. As with most malls, there are places to sit in the common areas. There are fountains, artwork, and the like. This common area is how shoppers can stay indoors while walking from one store to another. Woodland Mall has a strict written trespass policy prohibiting any activity in the mall that is not directly related to the enhancement of commercial retail sales. This includes prohibitions against soliciting, petitioning, securing signatures, speech-making, distributing handbells, and similar activity. Michigan Citizens Lobby was a liberal advocacy group seeking to qualify a petition to initiate state legislation and to qualify their proposal for a statewide ballot vote. On April Fool's Day, 1982, it was no joke when the director of Citizens Lobby notified Woodland Mall of their intentions to gather signatures at the mall on April 3rd. They were told by the mall their plan was against mall policy, but that didn't stop the group from showing up anyway. They were greeted by mall security and the mall's general manager who, once again, informed them this was prohibited activity on the property. Despite being told they were not welcome, Citizens Lobby defied mall management and entered with three card tables, signs announcing their presence and purpose, and they began soliciting signatures. 
They continued to do so until 6 p.m. that day and informed mall staff of their intention to come back two days later the following week. Before those next days could arrive, Woodland Mall petitioned and obtained a temporary restraining order against the liberal advocacy group because the mall was deemed to be private property. Because of the constitutional issues presented in this case, it eventually made its way to the Michigan Supreme Court, which we're reviewing and discussing today. The issue for the Michigan Supreme Court was this. Because private property and private conduct is involved, do the provisions of the Michigan Constitution at issue reach such private conduct and property? After all, the Michigan Constitution, via its Article 1, Sections 3 and 5, guarantee the right of free expression, assembly, and petition. This notion requires a determination concerning whether the aforementioned constitutional provision includes an implied state action limitation or if the constitutional provision is directly applicable against private entities as well. The Michigan Supreme Court started out by noting that it is a firmly established doctrine that constitutionally guaranteed individual rights are drawn to restrict governmental conduct and to provide protection from governmental interference and excesses. They go on to point out the Michigan Constitution has never been interpreted as extending to purely private conduct, that these provisions at issue have consistently been interpreted as being used to protect against governmental action. More so, the Michigan Supreme Court went on to say that even the history of the Michigan Constitutional Convention supports the idea that the reach of individual rights afforded by the Constitution is limited only to the protection against government. The history also shows that the drafters of the 1963 Michigan Constitution supported the proposition that these guarantees were included to address governmental infringement, but leaves regulation of private conduct to the legislature. Even a look to the United States Constitution reflects the limited authority granted to the federal government to exercise only those powers that have been expressly or impliedly delegated to it. That's in sharp contrast to state constitutions which serve as limitations on the otherwise plenary power of state government. So, said another way, the United States Constitution gives wide, almost limitless power to the states in certain areas unless those powers are curtailed by restrictions in that state's constitution. Sidebar. Plenary power. This is a concept coined by the United States Supreme Court to mean any authority granted to a governmental entity with zero restrictions. So to say that the state has plenary power means the state can create any laws and regulations under the sun. Its only real restriction would be that which would violate the United States Constitution. But if the people of an individual state were to create a state constitution, then state government will be restricted by both the U.S. Constitution as well as the state constitution. In conclusion, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that unless it is otherwise expressed in the provision, any constitutionally guaranteed protections are applicable only against the government. The court found no indication or reason to believe the people of Michigan, when adopting the 1963 state constitution, intended for those provisions to apply against private parties. 
Finally, and as an astute observation, the Michigan Supreme Court opined that if citizens of Michigan want their constitution to serve as both a shield against actions of the state, as well as to be used as a sword by individuals against individuals, they should amend the Michigan Constitution to allow for that. The majority of Supreme Court justices said they could not, in good judicial conscience, reinterpret the state constitution in a way that is contradictory to its fundamental purpose, its history, the intentions of its authors, past precedents of the court, or, and this they thought most important, against the understanding with which the constitution was adopted by the people of Michigan. The fourth and final right that we're going to discuss under Article 1, Section 3 is the right to associate. And that right can best be described through the lawsuit Michigan AFL-CIO versus the Employment Relations Commission. In our final case, we discuss the concept of freedom of association, which has been held by both the United States Supreme Court as well as our Michigan Supreme Court to be housed within the First Amendment and freedom of speech and we'll explain how. But first, our fact pattern. In 1994, the Michigan legislature passed and the governor signed amendments to the Public Employees Relation Act, herein I'll just refer to it as PERA, P-E-R-A, the Public Employees Relation Act. In particular, we're talking about school teachers back in their home school districts. Amongst those changes to the PERA Act, there was a prohibition against education associations like the Michigan Education Association from requiring local bargaining units to first obtain permission to ratify collective bargaining agreements. Under one of the changes made to PURA was that if a local school district was able to negotiate a contract between the district and the school board, the Michigan Education Association couldn't single-handedly veto the local's agreed-upon contract. Prior to this change, an entity like the Michigan Education Association could veto whatever collective bargaining agreement the locals came up with because it was believed that the MEA needed to have the ability to shut down something that could be seen as less than beneficial to other local school units around the state. So, uh, describing it a different way might be to say that if the school district of Grand Rapids signed a collective bargaining agreement with the Grand Rapids school board that wasn't as lucrative as what the Saginaw school district signed with the Saginaw school board, then Grand Rapids has watered down and accepted less than what they could have gotten, and it was believed that situation needed to be prevented by the Michigan Education Association. Both the Michigan AFL-CIO and the MEA sued the state of Michigan, alleging this interference by preventing the MEA from controlling the outcome of the local school districts was a First Amendment freedom of association violation. So how'd they get there, you ask? Well, let's talk about the MEA's argument. First, the MEA argued that the right to freedom of association includes a right to combine the ratification power of each local bargaining unit into the statewide education association, but this new prohibition violates that right. Next, they also argued this provision interferes with the right of an education association to advise a local bargaining unit against ratification of an agreement. But what does this really mean? 
the MEA believes their ability to approve a local's collective bargaining agreement binds the individual groups into one cohesive statewide entity. Further, they believe that when an agreement diverges from the standards established by the parent company, the entity can compel individual local units to bargain for the same selected standard provisions in their individual collective agreements as other units have around the state. So, said in a different way, as a statewide bargaining group, each local bargaining unit experiences increased strength in its collective bargaining negotiations. So let's talk about the court's plurality decision. This was not an easy case for the Michigan Supreme Court to decide. Three justices voted in favor of the constitutionality of this provision. Three justices voted the statutory provision was an unconstitutional violation of the school district's right to associate, and one justice thought the court should wait to see how the provision played out before determining whether it was constitutional or unconstitutional. However, because the one lone justice wasn't sure how it would play out, his vote left the provision intact within the act, but inapplicable regarding this specific case, so we had a plurality opinion, not a majority opinion. Sidebar. There is a difference between a majority opinion and a plurality opinion. Folks are most familiar with a majority opinion. It's just that. A majority of the justices all agree on the outcome of a case and the reasoning behind why the case was decided the way it was decided. However, with a plurality opinion, you may have a majority of justices who agree who the winner is, but they don't all agree with why the winner won his or her case. That's what happened in this situation. Three justices found the law constitutional. A different three justices found the law unconstitutional, so the law is tied three to three. The last justice thought it was too early to tell whether the law was or was not constitutional, so he decided to let the law stand for the time being, which, as crazy as it sounds, means four of seven justices didn't believe the law was unconstitutional, so the law survived the constitutional challenge. However, as previously noted, that one holdout judge didn't think the law should stand against this specific education association with these specific set of facts, so the law didn't apply to this specific case. Yeah, how'd I do explaining that? Clear as mud? So why did three of the seven Michigan Supreme Court justices believe this law to be constitutional? Why did they believe there was no violation to the freedom of association. The three justices holding that the statutory provision was constitutional believed in part that the freedom of association needs to be bifurcated between an organization's right to associate versus an individual's freedom to associate. If a government regulation impedes an individual's attempt to join an organization, that regulation would most likely, they believed, negatively implicate an individual's freedom of association rights. More so, they do not believe a statewide organization's power to veto the ratification of a collective bargaining agreement is a protected aspect of its internal organization. The justices believe the essential right protected under the freedom of association doctrine is the right to join together in a group of like-minded individuals and exercise free speech rights. 
If a statute regulates the internal affairs of an organization, it will be deemed to violate the individual's freedom of association only if that compelled change affects the ability of the members to come together and exercise free speech. So let me explain it this way. Individuals frequently come together to join with like-minded individuals regarding political, economical, and socially motivated purposes. Even if it's something as simple as the Kiwanis Club, a Girl Scout troop, or a VFW hall, these folks come together pursuant to the First Amendment Free Speech Clause to show their allegiance to a common cause. This is the essence of freedom of association. You have the right to join together. But what these justices, by deeming the statutory provision to be constitutional, they're saying is, is that preventing a group from something does not inherently infringe on the, individual, the individual's right to be a member of that group. And this statutory provision at hand is not preventing an individual from exercising their freedom of association to join the MEA or local unit at the school district level. What this statute does is it prevents the parent entity from denying the local unit from signing an agreement that the local unit negotiated with the local school board. These three justices did not believe that the statutory provision at hand prevented the members from coming together and exercise the members' free speech, although it did restrict the parent entity from telling the locals they couldn't sign their negotiated agreement. The justices didn't think that was an unconstitutional restriction. The justices went on to say that when a statute regulates the internal affairs of a group, the inquiry into the constitutionality of that statute should be on the effect the statute has on the decisions of the individuals to join or not join the organization. If a person is less inclined to join the organization because of the statute, these three justices believe there's a strong case to be made the statute infringes on the individual's freedom of association. And said another way, but for that statute, an individual would be more inclined to join the association. But because of that statute, individuals tend to shy away from membership. These three justices did not believe restricting the parent association from vetoing the local bargaining unit's negotiated agreement would make individuals less inclined to join the MEA. To the contrary, the justices argued it was more likely an individual would join the MEA because they knew that their local units could fight for and obtain the best outcome for them as individuals in their community versus a monolithic association trying to watch out for the statewide association's best interest. What about the three justices who would vote to declare the provision unconstitutional? What is their rationale? I want to talk about the other three justices and their dissent because their point of view could easily have been the winning decision in this case. They acknowledge there are no limits or set parameters on what could be seen as associational freedoms. They concede there is no bright line test to determine the appropriate measure of constitutional protection against state interference with associational rights. In particular, they took exception to the other side's argument that this statute was as simple as arguing an individual would or would not be more inclined to join the parent entity's right to veto an agreement being restricted. These three justices would argue that an organization's right to make decisions about their local units is a protected freedom of association right. 
they believed that any governmental intrusion on the internal structure and activity of a group may pose questions of constitutional significance. Why is that? Because it deprives the individuals the ability to run their organization as they desire. These justices believe the ability to control the internal structure of one's organization is an essential component to the freedom of association. Think of it as the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. When the members of an individual bargaining unit choose to associate with the statewide association, these people willingly relinquish their right to assert what they believe is best for their individual bargaining unit. The members of this unit do this because they believe that they will benefit from the association's overall pattern of collective action. And again, the whole, that being the statewide association, can do more in the grand scheme for the individual bargaining units because they are a large monolithic association than just being a one-off unit being able to do their own thing. And if units are able to consistently get certain long-term benefits because they are part of the whole, then giving up the authority to sign their own agreement without parental association approval is a small price to pay. But when you have a statute that changes the very structure of the parent association, it removes the hierarchical format from top down to a lateral structure where the parent isn't equal to the local units. These justices believe that this action is an infringement on the freedom of individuals to choose the kind of organization with which they choose to be affiliated. However, these three justices made it clear that if members of the local bargaining units wanted to take that veto authority away from the parent association, that would be the member's prerogative, not a decision for the state to make on behalf of those members. Lastly, what about that one holdout justice and his straddling the line between the two groups of the three justices? His belief was that the United States Supreme Court has addressed matters like this in the past, and his goal was to try and thread the needle between the two warring groups of justices. This one justice believed that no decision on the constitutionality should be made in speculative situations. He said there was no factual record created upon which he could rely either side was correct with their beliefs. He thought there was a lot of time spent during oral arguments trying to determine both the meaning of the statute in general, as well as whether the effects of the veto provision would play out as predicted by the MEA, should it be implemented as written. This justice believes a court should avoid adjudicating the constitutionality of a statute when facts critical to the analysis are not yet developed. He believed that the issues argued in the case could only be resolved by the court once the veto statute was implemented and the outcomes could be assessed. All right, that's going to do it for episode five of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me by email at podcast at TonySnyder.com. Or we're on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.